Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abai and take away and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, August the 28th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again uh, to yet another edition of our program. This episode features our Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, we have dispatches on the blocking of the United Nations Declaration related to nuclear proliferation. We'll have details on that. French President Emmanuel Macron has ended his three-day visit to the North African state of Algeria amid tensions between the two nations. The South African Communist Party's Central Committee has issued a statement on the most recent plenary that took place this weekend. And many higher educational institutions in the Federal Republic of Nigeria remain closed due to the failure of the government to resolve a strike by the academic staff of unions of universities, the ASUU. In the second and third hours, we conclude our month-long commemoration of Black August with a focus on mass incarceration through a speech by Michelle Alexander. Finally, we listen uh, to a panel discussion on the role of women in the Black Panther Party. These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program, so stay tuned. Uh, we'll take a musical interlude with Fela Alapo Kuti. Let's listen in. Thank you. 
Big four. One, two, three.
Baleko on your Sunday, laughing more to Baleko on your Sunday, laughing more
Thank mm-hmm. you. 
and you will dip for us together. You dig go, I dig come. Me and you, we jump together. You say you're wrong. You say I'm right. Yes. You say you set my car for me the second day. You run away from me. I know see you again. Now you want to run away again. Do the things the way you do.
welcome back. And uh, that uh, was the music of uh, Fela Analapo Kuti uh, from the Federal Republic of Nigeria and West Africa. That's uh, from an album entitled Miss Road, uh, the entire album. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, August 28th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. Uh, Russia has blocked the adoption of a joint declaration by United Nations Conference on Nuclear Disarmament. The Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is reviewed uh, by its 191 signatories every five years, aims to prevent the spread of nuclear weapons. Russia objected uh, to a draft text citing grave concern over military activities around Ukraine's nuclear plants, in particular, Zaporizhia. Participants in the last review in 2015 also failed to reach an agreement. The 2022 meeting, uh, which had been due in 2020, was delayed because of the COVID-19 pandemic. The failure to agree on a joint uh, declaration followed a four-week conference in New York. The Australian Foreign Ministry, Penny Wong, said she was deeply disappointed at the lack of the agreement. Uh, Russia obstructed uh, progress by refusing to compromise on proposed text accepted by all other states, she said. The U.S. Representative Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins said the U.S. deeply regrets this outcome, and even more so on Russia's actions that led us here today. Russia was opposed to a section of the text expressing grave concern over military activities around Ukrainian power plants, including the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, which Russia seized early on in the war against uh, Ukraine. In uh, North Africa, the leaders of the France and Algerian governments uh, took an important step yesterday towards mending relations scarred by disputes over migration and the legacy of colonial crimes, agreeing to cooperate, energy, security, and reassessing their joint histories. French President Emmanuel Macron uh, wrapped up a three-day visit to Algeria uh, with a raft of accords that France hopes will smooth ties with Africa's largest country, with uh, one of Africa's largest countries, a major gas and oil supplier to Europe and an influential regional military uh, player. Algerian uh, President uh, Abdel Majid Tabonet held an excellent and very successful visit and credited Macron's personal efforts towards rapprochement. Uh, the two were chummy at their final meeting Saturday, smiling, embracing, and holding hands. Tabonet specifically praised an unprecedented joint security meeting without elaborating. But the accords uh, released uh, by Macron's office uh, were then on specifics and stopped for a short uh, of an official apology for France's colonial-era wrongdoing, which Algerians have long clamored for. The countries agreed to uh, cooperate on gas and hydrogen development and medical research and create a joint commission to examine archives uh, from 130 years when Algeria was the crown jewel in France's empire. Uh, The study will include the fallout from French nuclear tests in the Algerian Sahara, unsettled questions about the remains of slain resistance fighters and other dark chapters of Algeria's years, eight years war 
uh, for independence. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In other news, uh, the newly elected South African Communist Party Central Committee held its first plenary from Friday to Sunday, uh, August 26th to the 28th, and in uh, Ikuru Lini, uh, after the successful 15th Party National Congress held in mid-July uh, just last month, the first plenary of the South African Communist Party's 15th National Congress Central Committee occurred amid a cost of, cost of living crisis characterized by high food, fuel, transport, and electricity prices coupled with persisting high levels of unemployment, poverty, and inequality. These reflect the capitalist system which prioritizes profit over the people and the environment. The Central Committee commands the trade union federations, COSATU and SAFTU, as well as their affiliates uh, for the Joint National Day of Action held on Wednesday, August 24th, having been calling for engagements towards a joint trade union program of action around the common interests and demands of the workers, the SACP fully supported the action. The key demands included a call for the government to address the cost of living crisis, the energy crisis, and the persisting high levels of inequality, unemployment, and poverty. And finally, there's been a strike uh, going on in higher educational institutions in the Federal Republic of Nigeria uh, for many months. Of course, uh, this has caused a gridlock uh, in regard uh, to developments uh, in the education sector in uh, the Federal Republic of Nigeria. According to a leading Nigerian publication, Emmanuel Osodeke, President of the Academic Staff Union of Universities, the ASUU, has advised the Muhammadu Buhari-led administration to learn how to resolve the ongoing strike from former President Goodluck Jonathan. The union has been on strike uh, since February, some six months, and all efforts to resolve the dispute has not yet yielded results. Osadeke said this in an interview uh, with the AIT's Focus Nigeria. According to him, the immediate path administration engaged the union in a 14-hour negotiations to resolve the issue. He said the government should set up a committee comprising people who love the country and can negotiate this uh, passionately. Government uh, should for once uh, go the way of good luck, Jonathan. And in one night, we had that meeting for 14 hours open. Both sides were open, no class, no power, no sitting power, and we looked at all the issues and we resolved it within 14 hours. If this government can put out a strong team, if the president cannot be there, let him put a strong team together or people who are not part of those who are telling lies presently. People who love this country, they don't have to be in government. If you can put this thing together and we meet uh, to look at how we can resolve this national problem, he said. The strike entered its 195th day on Sunday. Some of the lecturers' demands include funding for the revitalization of public universities, payment of earned academic allowances, adoption of the University Transparency Accountability Solutions, the UTAS, as a preferred payment option, instead of the integrated payroll and personnel information system and payment of promotions arrears. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire 
is an international electronic press service designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website uh, at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to uh, have access to the Pan-African Journal, Worldwide Radio Broadcast, this special edition of our program for today, uh, Sunday, August the 28th, uh, 2022. Just go to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. By logging on to uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal, not only can you have access to today's program uh, for uh, Sunday, August 28th, 2022, uh, you can also uh, have um, access to other uh, programs, uh, some 1,100 or more other programs. So right now, uh, we're going to take a musical interlude. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Elmore James, uh, Roland and Tumlin, and you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal Special Worldwide Radio Broadcast, and uh, right now we want to move into uh, Black August uh, programming all during the month. We've been focusing on the annual commemoration of Black August, which grew out of the struggle of the political prisoners and prisoners of war inside the jails and prisons of the United States, and of course, uh, it represents the continuation of the struggle of African people historically against enslavement, uh, colonialism, neocolonialism, imperialism, racism, and all forms of exploitation and oppression. Uh, today, we want to look uh, once again at the phenomenon of mass incarceration, which, uh, of course, acts as a key aspect of national oppression and social containment uh, of the African-American people and other oppressed and working-class people in the United States. Let's listen to a lecture from Michelle Alexander, uh, who is a scholar who has written uh, a book entitled uh, The New Jim Crow. Uh, this is a lecture she delivered at the Union Theological Seminary uh, several years ago. Let's listen in. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here tonight. Oh, I am happy to be here. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Oh, I am so glad to be here at Union Theological seminary surrounded by so many people of faith and people of conscience, beautiful souls who are dedicated to justice, not just in theory, but in practice, in daily life. In so many ways, I feel like coming to Union is like coming home. I've had the opportunity to meet with many of you um, in the past two days in classrooms and rich discussions and debates, and this feels like family, feels like home. I am in love with the spirit of this place and thrilled by the work that so many of you are doing, opening hearts and minds and transforming lives and communities. I especially want to thank Serene Jones uh, and Judith Moyers for inviting me here tonight uh, to participate in this wonderful lecture series. I am in awe of the steadfast commitment and remarkable contributions that both Judith and Bill Moyers have made to social justice. So to be here at Union at Judith's invitation, you know, a work day just doesn't get much better than this. So um, thank you. Thank you so much for having me here tonight. Well, I've been giving some thought to what I want to say tonight, uh, a lot of thought. After all, we're all coming together here tonight to explore the meaning of race and justice at a particularly critical moment in our nation's history, a time when it seems as though we may be once again at a fork in the road. Of course, it's always tricky business to make predictions or assessments in the midst of great crisis. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. himself pointed out that difficulty nearly a century ago. He said, quote, whenever I'm asked my opinion of the current state of the civil rights movement, I am forced to pause. It is not easy to describe a crisis so profound that it has caused the most powerful nation in the world to stagger in confusion and bewilderment. 
Well, in recent months, as our nation has reeled from Michael Brown and Eric Garner's senseless killings and the refusal of consecutive grand juries to issue indictments, confusion and bewilderment has flowed. Flowed is tears, rage, shame, disbelief, and more than a bit of denial. This particular crisis may feel sudden and new to some, but its roots are as old as the country itself. We continue to live the paradox of a nation founded with the bold preamble that all men are created equal with certain inalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, while at the same time denying all of those basic civil and human rights to slaves and writing into the original Constitution the rule that black people counted as only three-fifths of a human being. This paradox of a nation founded with lofty ideals of freedom and equality, but extending those ideals primarily to wealthy white men is the founding paradox of our nation, and it remains a paradox to this day, even now as a black man sits in the Oval Office. For years now, I have been obsessed with this paradox. Not its theoretical existence, but its concrete manifestation in the brutal system of mass incarceration, a penal system unlike anything this world has ever seen. I've been obsessed. I have been traveling from coast to coast, speaking to just about anyone who will listen, saying pretty much the same thing over and over again. I have been talking and talking and talking about the ways in which our nation from its founding, from the very, very beginning, has repeatedly birthed and maintained extraordinary systems of racial and social control and continues to do so even now, even as most of us claim to be colorblind, even in the age of Obama. Over and over and over, I've repeated the basic facts. More African-Americans are under correctional control today, in prison or jail, on probation or parole, than were enslaved in 1850, a decade before the Civil War began. And since John Legend repeated those words at the Academy Awards, people have said, and I've heard people saying, well, those numbers really aren't so bad because there are a lot more black people you know, alive today than there were back then, so those numbers aren't so bad. And it's true that mass incarceration doesn't affect everyone. In fact, it affects a relatively small segment of American society, one defined by race and class. But within that segment, it has come for nearly everyone. Nationwide, about a third of black men can expect to spend time behind bars. But if you lack a high school diploma, as many do as most do in many inner city communities, that figure rises to about 60%. And then if you count all those who have been saddled with criminal records who may have been lucky enough to get just felony probation, never mind the millions who are all stopped, frisked, searched, and monitored for no good reason at all, as well as all of the thousands who are cited for loitering or jaywalking in the name of broken windows policing, the practical equivalent of the black codes in poor communities of color, 
Well, now you're beginning to get a picture of an entire community defined by race and class under perpetual correctional control or surveillance and relegated to a permanent second-class status. In many urban areas today, more than half of working-age African-American men now have criminal records and are thus subject to legalized discrimination for the rest of their lives. In cities like Chicago, Detroit, Philly, Newark, and likely New York, the statistics are even worse. And once branded a criminal or felon, you're ushered into a parallel social universe in which the basic civil and human rights that apply to others no longer apply to you. You may be stripped legally of the very right supposedly won in the civil rights movement, like the right to vote, the right to serve on juries, and the right to be free of legal discrimination in employment, housing, access to education, and basic public benefits. So many of the old forms of discrimination that we supposedly left behind during the Jim Crow era are suddenly legal again once you've been branded a felon. That's why I say we haven't ended racial caste in America. We've merely redesigned it. In many ways, it seems as though that the birth of this new caste-like system was foreshadowed by the U.S. Constitution itself. Perhaps we should have all seen this coming. For the 13th Amendment in the United States, ratified following the Civil War, explicitly abolished slavery and involuntary servitude, except as punishment for a crime. That's the loophole. It's not true that slavery has been abolished in the United States. It's simply not true. If you've been convicted of a crime, the U.S. Constitution says slavery is just fine. And in the 14th Amendment, which was adopted with the express purpose of eradicating the vestiges of slavery and guaranteeing the right to vote and equal treatment under the law, the same loophole appears again. Section 2 of the 14th Amendment states that the one-person, one-vote principle and the right to vote itself cannot be abridged except in cases of rebellion or punishment for a crime. It seems now, in retrospect, that the U.S. Constitution itself nearly provided instruction for the legal formation of the next caste system. It states quite explicitly that you may not enslave or deny equal treatment of the law or the right to vote or relegate any citizen to permanent second-class status unless you first brand them a criminal. And then at that moment, they are deemed to have no humanity at all, and can be subject to precisely the same treatment as a slave. Over and over to audiences large and small in prisons and reentry centers, on college campuses, churches, judicial conferences, just anywhere, people will listen to me. I've been repeating the same message, that we as a nation have done it again. And I've been trying to expose the myths that have kept us asleep and in denial, passively accepting this human rights nightmare that is occurring on our watch. These powerful myths, especially the myth that the explosion in our prison system can be explained simply by crime and crime rates. It's not true. Just not true. There's this myth that somehow black and brown folks have just brought all of this on themselves. And the data... The research shows it's just not true. Once I finally, very belatedly, woke up 
to the reality of this criminal injustice system and came to realize that it is not just another institution in our society infected with racial bias, but a primary engine of racial inequality in the United States, and that we will never achieve quality education for poor kids of color or meaningfully address chronic joblessness and hopelessness as long as we continue to wage wars on the most vulnerable and lock them up in mass into a permanent second-class status. Once it became clear to me that this punitive impulse towards them, the others, this impulse to control, slay, enslave, and punish them, lies at the root of all our divisive racial politics infecting every single social justice debate, not just about crime, but also about education, zero tolerance, health care, housing, the minimum wage and beyond, making a progressive alliance between poor and working class white folks and folks of color nearly impossible as we are constantly pit against one another, encouraged to blame ourselves and one another rather than grasping the bigger picture and asking the bigger questions and seeing our shared interests and dreams. Once I began to see that this pervasive, punitive impulse towards poor people of color has less to do with crime than our racial history and our racial present, which is why our criminal justice system functions more like a system of racial and social control than a system of crime prevention and control. Once I came to see this and finally woke up myself, I became obsessed. And so here I am tempted yet again to give you all a new Jim Crow lecture, an overview of the war on drugs and the war on crime and how it all actually works as opposed to how it's advertised and how these wars and more importantly the war mentality, the us versus them, search and destroy, lock them up and throw away the key has decimated communities of color and how our legal system has conspired to keep millions cycling in and out of prison for the rest of their lives, I'm tempted. <laughs> for I know that many people in this audience think that they know how the system works, just like I once did, but really don't. Some of you may think that you know how bad it is, how discriminatory, how the legal system is rigged, but you don't really know the half of it, just like I once thought that I knew but didn't. But in the short time that I'm here tonight, I really don't want to talk any more about the problem and how we got here. Instead, I want to wrestle with the big question, the elephant in the room. What does all this mean for us, for people of faith, people of conscience? What are we called to do? At this moment in our nation's history, what does our faith and conscience demand of us? Now, don't get me wrong, understanding the problem, really understanding it and how we got to this moment in our nation's history is critically important. If we don't really know our history, truly understand it, we are doomed to repeat it. Nothing could be more clear to me now. But what I really want to do, what I feel moved to do tonight, is to challenge us to think about what this means for us as people of faith, people of conscience. But I must say, in challenging us to wrestle with this question, I want to make clear that I'm not pretending to have any special insight into the answer. I am not a theologian. 
I believe that we desperately need a multiracial, multiethnic, interfaith theology of liberation for this era of mass incarceration. But I'm not here to offer a theology tonight. Instead, I'm here to tell you why I think we need one. For much of my adult life, I have been involved in various efforts to reform our justice system or obtain something like justice for people who have been discriminated against, abused, locked up, locked out, and disposed of like garbage. It took me, as a civil rights lawyer, a long while to wake up to the reality that a new Jim Crow had been born. But what I can tell you from my years of experience as a civil rights lawyer, as a legislative advocate, as a coalition builder, as a media advocate, is this. Ultimately, this freedom struggle will not be won in the courtrooms or in halls of power. There is no legal strategy or set of policy arguments that will end this history and cycle of creating caste-like systems in America. For what we have here is a crisis of conscience. The truth is we've become the most punitive nation in the world, and the roots of our punitiveness have a great deal to do with race. A relentless, punitive impulse, the recurring impulse to punish and control poor people and people of color rather than view them as worthy of care, compassion, and concern. What we face is a profound moral and spiritual crisis, not merely a failure of public policy. Mark Maurer, the executive director of the Sentencing Project, published the results of research in his book, great book, The Race to Incarcerate. The research showed that the most punitive nations in the world are the most diverse. The most lenient, the most compassionate nations are the most homogeneous. It seems that an aspect of human nature is a punitive impulse towards those we label the others. And so perhaps it should come as no surprise that a vicious backlash against the civil rights movement manifesting as law and order and a get-tough movement. Combined with the economic collapse of inner-city communities across America, led to the birth of a penal system unlike anything the world had ever seen. Indeed, it now seems fair to say that the future of American democracy itself, as it continues to diversify in the years to come, and with increasing economic inequality, rests on whether we as a people ultimately rise to the challenge that this multiracial, multi-ethnic experiment in democracy presents and find a way to care for each other, genuinely care for each other across the innumerable lines of race, class, ethnicity, and difference. If we are serious about doing more than just tinkering with the mass incarceration machine, if we are serious about breaking our nation's habit of creating massive systems of racial and social control, if we are serious about rising to the challenge that this paradox of America presents, then people of faith and people of conscience are going to need to step up in a big way and show tremendous courage, speak unpopular and inconvenient truths, and offer a vision for justice that transcends the politics of power and privilege. I am speaking now most especially to students here at Union. Do not look to the lawyers to do the work of defining what justice means. Though we certainly need lawyers today, their skills and their talents as much as we need anyone. Do not look to the policymakers to define a vision of what the beloved community 
might look like once the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. We need our policymakers, creative, determined, inspired policymakers who are capable of imagining alternatives and designing meaningful alternatives to the status quo. But I hope we never imagine, not even for a moment, that there is some quick policy fix that is going to solve the ultimate dilemma we face. And whatever you do, please do not look to the politicians to provide moral vision or courage, especially President Barack Obama. Yes, we need far more courage from our elected leaders for sure. But do not look to them, for we're looking to you. It may not seem like people of faith, people of conscience, people of courageous moral vision are in high demand right now. After all, it seems that nearly every week there's some new poll or study showing that Americans are becoming ever more disenchanted with religion and drifting away from their faith, becoming more cynical about politics. But for the past five years, I've been speaking to thousands of people all over the country. And one of the questions that I hear over and over again is, who will be our Martin Luther King Jr.? Who will be our leader in this movement to end mass incarceration? Now, this question used to really annoy me because I do not believe that we should be waiting around for some magical, mythical leader to appear who will lead us all to the promised land like some Pied Piper with the rest of us following behind, you know, whistling their tune. I am not a fan of the big leader to the rescue school of thought, and so this question has bothered me for some time. But recently I've started listening more carefully when the question is asked, who will be our Dr. King? And I've come to believe that what people are really asking for isn't necessarily a leader to the rescue, but instead they're expressing a deep need and a sincere desire for the kind of bold moral vision and radical alternative narrative, and a model of courageous risk-taking and sacrifice that was offered by Dr. King and by Malcolm X in his way. I believe what they're asking for everywhere I go, whether they may know it or not, is what Dr. Cornell West has aptly called prophetic fire. And let me be clear that when using that term, I do not mean to evoke images of men at pulpits belling about justice and pounding the lectern. I mean, this is a women of spirit lecture after all. And yes. And on that note, I remember when, you know, I was in law school, I attended a panel where the topic was hate speech. And there was this young female professor named Mari Matsuda on the panel. And she was a beautiful, young, Asian-American woman, very petite. And she sat very still and very serene while her other male panelists carried on, making points and jabbing their fingers in the air. And all of them insisting that, while of course we must hate, abhor hate speech, we must, absolutely must, value the First Amendment right to say anything to anyone, anywhere. That First Amendment right must be deemed inviolate. Talking over one another, interrupting anyone, reaffirming the First Amendment. And then when it was her turn to speak, she spoke quietly and calmly and with such extraordinary conviction and yet humility that the whole room just hushed 
and hung on her every word. You could literally hear a pin drop. And she spoke what amounted to heresy in that elite law school setting. She said that she believed that the 14th Amendment, which guarantees the principle of equal treatment under the law, and which was adopted following a civil war with the express purpose of ridding our nation of a racial caste system that made a mockery of our democracy, must be the one principle of our Constitution that trumps them all. And therefore, in her view, no one in the United States should be viewed as possessing a constitutional right to engage in hate speech. Now, I cannot tell you what a powerful impact she had on me, and it wasn't what she said so much, but how she said it. She was utterly fearless in speaking her truth, and she was refusing to resort to the tactics of power and control, arguing and interrupting and intimidating others into agreement or acquiescence or silence. She was on fire in the most beautiful way, unlike anything I had ever quite seen before. And so when I say to you, students at Union, that we are looking to you, we desperately need you to bring your prophetic fire, I'm asking you, begging you to speak in your own voice, your own truth, and with a fearlessness and a determination that honors your most sacred beliefs and moral commitments. We need you, students of morality and students of theology, to speak your truth so that we might all muster the courage to do the same. I personally have been struggling to muster my own courage. And I will be eternally grateful for one man who helped me to see that I could no longer hide from the spiritual dimensions of my own work. I met him a few years ago while I was on the road talking about my book and the phenomenon of mass incarceration. And at the time, I was struggling with a feeling of depression and anxiety, worrying that all of the work that I had put into writing the new Jim Crow was actually had all been for nothing. It had begun as a strange, nagging feeling, actually a voice in my head or this recurring thought that kept repeating itself after every speech. The voice said quietly but clearly, all sound and fury but signifying nothing. And I was at a loss as to why I would be hearing such a voice in my head. I started thinking that God or the spirits of my ancestors were trying to send me a message that the work that I've been doing was for naught, that it all meant nothing, that I was accomplishing nothing. And it's difficult to explain the distress that this thought, this recurring thought, this voice was causing me. I should point out that my book had not yet become a bestseller. In fact, I was struggling mightily to get anyone to listen to the message I was desperately trying to share. I was speaking in nearly empty church basements and to small crowds, often begging people to let me come and share my message. Over the time, crowds began to grow in size, thanks in part to Bill Moyers and Amy Goodman, who were among the first people to grant me an interview. But, you know, I was getting tired, and I was on the road away from my young children. I'm actually quite an introvert by nature, so getting up in front of large crowds over and over again was scary and draining. But I was doing it, trying to share the facts, wake people up, tell the history, share the data. And then as I was trying to walk off the stage, I would hear all sound and fury and signifying nothing. And then a moment of truth came. I was invited by the late, great Vincent Harding, Dr. Vincent Harding, to speak 
at the Islip School of Theology in Denver. And when I arrived, he welcomed me like a long-lost friend, and then he sat me down and told me that he was grateful for my research and writing, but that's not why he invited me. He said in his slow, low, and steady voice, the reason I invited you here, my sister, daughter, niece, and friend, isn't because you gathered the evidence to indict the system. No, I invited you because you wrote that the time had come for us to stand with the despised, the accused, the convicted, the least of these. You didn't use the words of Jesus, he said, but I hear them. What you do unto the least of these, my brethren, you do unto me. And then he leaned in towards me, held my gaze silently for a moment, and said, now that's the real message, right? (laughs) And I'm not sure that I knew it then, but that was the beginning of the end of the voice in my head. I began to awaken to a new understanding of my own mission and purpose. My job wasn't simply to speak as a lawyer or as an advocate or as an academic railing against the system. Thanks to Dr. Harding's gentle blessing and reminder, I felt called that I was to do my best to share a deeper, more profound message about the meaning of this moment in our nation's history and to do the work with others to inspire an awakening to the moral and spiritual dimensions of mass incarceration. I came to see that a large part of my job, perhaps the most important part of my job, was to dig for deeper truth and to speak that truth with a lot more courage. Over the years, and especially in recent months, I have found that too often in our rush to respond to a crisis or to a tragedy, another police killing, or in our rush to take action and just do something about something, we skip that critical, all-important step of asking the question, what is the truth? Not just the facts of who said what and when, what came first or later, not just the data and the statistics, the cost of this or that, not the debate about what the witnesses saw, were his arms really raised all the way up, how many seconds did it take before the police pulled the trigger. No, I mean, what is the truth, the deeper truth, the truth that holds the power to transform, to awaken, to shake the foundations and allow something new and beautiful to burst forth? What is the deeper truth? And then once we begin to glimpse that truth, once we get a glimpse of it, it's not enough to just hold it in our minds and play around with it like some kind of intellectual jigsaw puzzle. If we're to make our lives useful, if we are to be worthy of this magnificent gift called life, then we've got to get serious about sharing the fruits of this truth. I would go so far as to say we must be the fruits of this truth. For the, in the end, there's just no escaping it. I mean, one truth about the truth is that it never goes away. It always comes back, resurfacing in new forms, sometimes masquerading in different guises, but always shows up again, daring us to face it. So will we face it? Will we face the truth, speak the truth in this time, in this age? Here's another truth about the truth. In every time and in every age, there are those who will deny the truth and those who will courageously confront it and do their best to rise to the challenge that moment in history presents. 
I remember when I was a kid in school, I was so ashamed and demoralized whenever teachers would start talking about slavery or Jim Crow. The textbooks would show pictures of black people hanging from trees or whites-only signs. And I read about the fact that, you know, people who looked like me were forced to sit at the back of the bus. My teacher said they wanted us to see these pictures and learn the truth about slavery so we could understand the segregation and the horror of it all. But my teachers, as well-intentioned as they were, did not tell the whole truth. They taught us about the pain and the suffering and the cruelty, the dehumanization, but they didn't say much about the courage, the resistance, the love that endured, the songs that were born in cotton fields, and the magnificent movements that were led by people who could barely read, could not vote, people who were thought to be less than human. As Dr. Harding has written, there is a river, a river of courage, love, and rebellion, and creative nonviolent action. A beautiful river runs through it all. And that's the truth, too, the whole truth. And the question, I think, as we gather tonight is whether we are going to face the truth of our times and join that beautiful river, that raucous, sometimes dangerous river, or not. Are we willing to join that river and widen that river so it eventually engulfs us all, carrying us downstream to a place we all belong, or not? Now, I don't want to get carried away with metaphors here. I want to be very clear and explicit about my meaning. When I say that we need a multiracial, multi-ethnic, interfaith theology of liberation for this era of mass incarceration, I am saying that we are called to build a new moral consensus in this country, a revolutionary understanding about who we are as human beings, who we are as children of God, and what we owe one another. And I'm not using this word revolutionary as mere rhetorical flair. After years of piecemeal policy reform and tinkering with the machine, I now finally understand what Dr. King meant when he said, just months before his death, after Selma, after the Civil Rights Acts and the Voting Rights Acts had been passed, he told a reporter, quote, For years I labored with the idea of reforming the existing institutions of the society, a little change here, a little change there. Now I feel quite differently. I think you've got to have a reconstruction of the entire society, a revolution of values, end quote. Frustrated by white resistance to addressing in any meaningful way decaying ghettos, failing the schools, structural joblessness, and crippling poverty, Dr. King said that America must be reborn. He said, quote, the dispossessed of this nation, the poor, both white and Negro, live in a cruelly unjust society. They must organize a revolution against that injustice, not against the lives of their fellow citizens, but against the structures through which the society is refusing to lift the load of poverty, end quote. And then, when speaking to his staff at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in 1967, staff who were concerned that the civil rights movement had lost its steam and direction, King said, the time had come to shift from a civil rights movement to a human rights movement. Political reform efforts were no longer adequate to the task at hand. He said, quote, for the past 12 years, we have been in a reform movement. But after Selma and the Voting Rights Bill, we moved into a new era which must be an era of revolution. We must see the great distinction between a reform movement and a revolutionary movement. We are called upon to raise certain basic questions about the whole society." End quote. 
Well, today, I fear that many civil rights lawyers and advocates like myself have been stuck in a model of advocacy that King was determined to leave behind. Rather than challenging the basic structure of our society and doing the hard work of movement building on behalf of poor people of all colors, we have been tempted too often by the opportunity of people of color to be included within the political and economic structure as is. And we allowed ourselves to be willfully blind to the emergence of a new caste system, a system of social excommunication that has denied millions of poor people and people of color basic human dignity. I don't think the significance of this can be overstated for the failure to acknowledge the humanity and dignity of all people has lurked at the root of every caste system. This common thread explains why in the 1780s, the British Society for the Abolition of Slavery adopted as its official seal a woodcut of a kneeling slave above a banner that read, Am I not a man and a brother? That symbol was followed more than 100 years later by signs worn around the necks of black sanitation workers during the Poor People's Campaign, answering the slave's question with a simple statement, I am a man. And yet here we are, decades later, with a black man in the White House and most Americans claiming to be colorblind, and thousands of people are holding signs eerily reminiscent of eras we supposedly left behind, reminding a forgetful nation that black lives matter. The fact that a sign is necessary like that today in protest of yet another caste-like system, suggests that the model of civil rights advocacy that has been employed for the past several decades is not, as King predicted, adequate to the task at hand. If we can agree that what is needed now at this critical juncture is not mere tinkering or tokenism, but as King insisted more than 40 years ago, a radical restructuring of our society, then perhaps we can also agree that a radical restructuring of our approach to advocacy is in order as well. And I dare say, though I'm not a theologian, perhaps a radical new approach to our theology is in order as well. For those of us who consider ourselves people of faith and people of conscience, we must acknowledge that we, we have been far too quiet for far too long as our nation built a penal system predicated on denying to God's children the very forms of forgiveness, compassion, and opportunities for redemption that we claim to cherish. What sort of theology tolerates this complicit silence? Perhaps the revolution must first begin within us. Of course, there are those who tell me that my newfound revolutionary spirit is misplaced, especially now that there is so much progress being made through traditional political channels to end mass incarceration in America. I'm often asked, aren't I thrilled by marijuana legalization? Aren't I delighted that the Koch brothers and Newt Gingrich are sitting down at the same table with the ACLU and the Center for American Progress to come up with a grand plan to end mass incarceration? Aren't I glad that President Obama granted clemency to eight people convicted of nonviolent drug offenses? Isn't it great that the Justice Department just issued a report finding a pattern of practice of discrimination in the Ferguson Police Department? Aren't I delighted that the new mayor of New York City finally settled the stop and frisk case? Over and over again, people ask me, did you ever think back when you were writing your book that any of this would be possible? And I have to say, yes. 
Yes. Yes. I definitely, I definitely thought it was possible, and in many ways, it is what I feared. As a nation, we are on the verge of doing many of the right things for the wrong reasons. Now, don't get me wrong, I am a supporter of marijuana legalization. In fact, I believe that simple possession of all drugs for personal use should be decriminalized. I believe we should follow the example set by Portugal, which has decriminalized all drugs, the simple possession of all drugs, and after 10 years, they reported rates of drug addiction and abuse went down as they reinvested all that money they spent caging people into drug treatment and providing education and support to people who may be at risk of drug addiction. And I am glad there is emerging bipartisan support for reducing harsh mandatory minimum sentences for some nonviolent drug crimes, as well as reforms for, you know, mentally ill people that make it more likely that they'll get health care treatment rather than a jail cell. But when considering whether marijuana legalization and the recent bipartisan initiatives represent genuine progress, and by that I mean truly transformational change, I think we should ask ourselves, have we as a nation changed our minds about the dignity and value of those people whose lives have been destroyed by the drug war? Or have we simply changed our minds about marijuana? If legalization is motivated primarily by our changing views of the drug, the growing consensus in the medical community that marijuana is actually less harmful than alcohol or tobacco, but our views about them, those who have been targeted in mass for minor drug crimes, haven't really changed, then we haven't made much progress from a racial justice perspective. Similarly, we've got to ask ourselves whether the primary engine driving the new bipartisan enthusiasm for criminal justice reform, whether that enthusiasm has been driven primarily by a new awakening to the value of the lives and communities that have been destroyed, or is this enthusiasm driven primarily by concerns about the costs of this massive prison state and reluctance to raise taxes on the predominantly white middle class? Truly transformative change will come when and only when we change rules, laws, policies, and practices because we have opened our hearts and our minds for the better regarding the dignity and value of all people of all colors, no matter who they are, where they came from, or what they may have done. Yes. By doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, we save lives today only to lose them tomorrow. For what we know, what we certainly ought to know by now, is that systems of racial and social control adapt and morph over time, adapting to the needs and constraints of the time. And ultimately what lies at the core of the current caste system is a flawed public consensus a failure to care, to really care across the lines of race and class, the belief that some lives simply don't matter. And it is this failure to care that lies at the core of every caste-like system that has ever existed in the United States or anywhere else in the world. So I rejoice for the lives that may be spared by this new bipartisan alliance, but I am filled with grief 
for the lives we will certainly lose tomorrow if we do not find a way to steer this ship in a radically different direction and develop a new moral consensus. And so, yes, I am glad that Mayor, the new mayor of New York, has stopped fighting the brilliant litigation brought by the Center for Constitutional Rights challenging the city's discriminatory and abusive stop-and-frisk practices. But I have to pause and take a deep breath as I consider how far he and we have truly come. For even as he entered into a landmark consent decree and spoke the truth about his son and what he needs to be aware of when dealing with the police, he has practically in the same breath clung to and reaffirmed the cruel and immoral doctrine known as broken windows policing. And for those who are unfamiliar, Broken windows policing is the notion that the best way to make our communities safe and secure is to come down with a hammer on people who commit the most minor of infractions. Not on all people, of course, for broken windows policing is not practiced in the wealthy neighborhoods, but only in the poorest and most vulnerable communities of color. The notion that to effectively deal with them, the others, we must arrest and fine and cite people in mass for things like selling unpacked cigarettes, riding a bicycle on the sidewalk, or jaywalking. This zero-tolerance, purely punitive mentality and impulse believing this is how you make a community safe. This is how you keep them under control. This belief system lies at the very root of all that is wrong with so much of our politics and our justice system today. Perhaps you've heard the old saying, when all you've got is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. And when it comes to poor communities and communities of color, all we bring is a hammer. Everyone in these communities is treated as nails. Nails to be pounded down, beat down, controlled, beat into submission. Now, I will not deny that broken windows are a sign of distress in a community if they are a regular occurrence. Just like trash in the streets or hostile graffiti on the walls, when plentiful, those are signs. And I'll be the first to acknowledge that ignoring these signs of distress comes at a price. A price that is paid first and foremost by the people who live in those communities. The critical question, though, is how do we respond to these signs? Do we bring the hammer? Or do we, I'm asking you as people of faith and people of conscience, do we not have other tools at our disposal? And if we do, and I know we do, what sort of crime in the eyes of God do we commit by failing to use them? And please do not believe it when people say, oh, these are only little misdemeanor offenses. No big deal. We don't need to be too concerned about these citations, these misdemeanor arrests. For after all, it was just a minor misdemeanor that Eric Gardner was accused of selling loose, untaxed cigarettes when a police officer saw fit to choke him to death for his crime. Of course, that's an extreme case, yet the point remains, if you know anything at all about how this system works, you know that if you're poor, you likely can't pay that misdemeanor fine. And you might lose your job because of the time you spent showing up in court. And these misdemeanor fencers, they too can follow you for the rest of your life in this era of technology. They can show up on background checks. They can be the reason you're denied employment, denied access to housing, and suddenly this little misdemeanor offense is the reason you're unemployed or homeless. And now this little misdemeanor is being used against you in your sentencing hearing because you robbed a convenience store or sold some weed because you were hungry or desperate for cash. And then the judge looks at you and says the words, 
repeat offender. And the prosecutor says, yeah, he's nothing but a troublemaker. He's had a number of run-ins with the law. So yes, it matters. It really matters when we show up in the lives of poor people with nothing but a hammer. Jesus taught that he who is without sin should cast the first stone. Well, we have become a nation of stone throwers. And in this era of mass incarceration, it is not enough to drop your own stone. We have got to be willing to catch the stones raining down on the most vulnerable, and we must be willing to stand up to the stone throwers and disarm them. I believe. I believe we now find ourselves at a fork in the road. We can continue down the road most traveled, the road of business and politics as usual, the path of reforming our political institutions here and there, the path Dr. King was determined to leave behind. Or we can choose a different path, the rocky, dangerous path that comes without a map. It's a path that's beckoning us again, thanks in large part to the courage of the young people in Ferguson who stood up when Michael Brown was shot down and inspired thousands of people to wake up, get up, and march here in New York City and beyond. If we choose this rocky path, there will be no guidebook, no map, no instructions. All we will have is our moral compass and the whisperings of the angels and our ancestors in our ears reminding us to dig for deeper truth and to speak and to act with greater courage, reminding us, in the words of Dr. James Cone, that humanity's salvation is available only through our solidarity with the crucified people in our midst. As I see it, proving that solidarity means being willing to speak unpopular, difficult truths, never avoiding the racial dimensions or the profound moral questions for purposes of expediency. It means never seeking justice on the cheap, but always demanding full restoration and reparation for those who have been harmed the most. It means being on fire for justice and believing with undying faith that the slaves who sung songs of freedom in the cotton fields and the immigrants who are toiling in the fields today and those who risked their lives on the freedom rides or who marched in Selma and those who faced tear gas in Ferguson and those who marched carrying signs saying Black Lives Matter on the streets of New York City were not foolish to believe that America can be born again. We can and we must build a movement to end not only mass incarceration and mass deportation, but a broad-based, radical human rights movement that ends once and for all our history's cycle of creating caste-like systems in America. A movement for education, not incarceration, jobs, not jails. A movement to end all forms of legal discrimination against people released from prison. Discrimination that denies them basic human rights to work, to shelter, to food. A movement for voting rights for all, including those behind bars. Voting rights for people who are prisoners is common in other Western democracies, but not here in America. A movement that will end the war on drugs once and for all and shift to a public health model for dealing with drug addiction and drug abuse. A movement that will stand up to the police unions and transform the police itself from warriors into peace officers directly accountable to the communities they serve. Yes. A movement that will ensure that every dollar saved from ending the wars that have been declared on poor communities of color 
The wars on crime and drugs will be reinvested back into those communities, the communities most harmed. Meaningful reparations and justice reinvestment. A movement that abandons our purely punitive approach to dealing with violence and violent crimes and embraces a more restorative and rehabilitative approach, one that takes seriously the interests of the victim, the offender, and the community as a whole. A movement that is rooted in the awareness of the dignity and humanity of us all, no matter who we are, where we came from, or what we may have done. I believe it will be said when the history of this movement is written that this place, Union Theological Seminary, was at the forefront, offering for all people of all colors, ethnicities, and faiths a theology of liberation, an ethics of justice, a vision of what love looks like in public. I pray that this year, 2015, will be the year that King's revolution was finally born, the nonviolent revolution he prayed for and died for. Finally, the sleeping giant woke up, got up, and walked, and chose the road less traveled. And that, I believe historians one day will say, ultimately made all the difference. Thank you so much for having me here tonight. Thank you. as to where to begin the process of asking questions and involving everyone. And I just want to say thank you so much uh, for your courage and your clarity and everything. Um, so uh, when we think about uh, this pre-revolutionary moment and the movement that we are looking for, finding the leaders who have that combination of compassion and heart and clarity um, to work with that clear and precise critical analysis and the ability to see with focus where we need to go and not to be distracted by the things that spin around us um, trying to lead us off in the wrong direction. That is a rare thing and we have that in you and it, you are blessing all of us with your leadership. So we have time for just two questions, and I have um, had these uh, questions um, given to me on an iPad. So um, I think the first one is one that we've been wrestling with here, um, is how do you relate mass incarceration and the new Jim Crow to immigration detention? That is such a good question. <laughs> You know, um, I had the opportunity to speak with a wonderful group of union students earlier today, and this question came up then as well, and I think it's so important. And, you know, I am a big believer that 
The movement to end mass deportation should not be separate in any way from the movement to end mass incarceration. That they are one movement, they ought to be viewed as one movement because at their core they're about precisely the same thing. It's about whether we view poor people of color as people who are deserving of our care, compassion, and concern, or whether we respond with a purely punitive impulse towards them. And what we see with the call to get tough and crack down on immigrants and the calls from some to deport even children back to countries where they might face certain death, this, this willingness to dispose of the others is at the core of the drug war, of the wars that have been declared domestically on poor people of color in the United States in various forms, and that we ought to view the movement and the mass criminalization of immigrants um, and mass deportation as part of the same movement to end mass incarceration. It's about fundamentally whether we care about poor people and people of color and what kind of basic human rights and dignity we feel they deserve. But I think there's some real challenges to getting there. Um, there's two in particular that come to mind. One is that within the immigrant rights movement itself, there has been a tendency among many well-intentioned advocates to say things like, we're not criminals. We're immigrants. We're good, hard-working criminals. We're not, we're, we're good, hard-working people. We're not criminals. And I've seen in some marches for immigration reform and immigrants and signs that literally say, we are not criminals, right? Well, once you say that, say, we're not them. We are not criminals, the bad people. We're the good people. Therefore, we're deserving of your care, compassion, and concern. You've developed a, a, a fault line within the movement. Um, I believe that we should honor the criminality within all of us. Because the reality is, is that we, we are all criminals. <laughs> we are all criminals. We are all criminals, just as we are all sinners. We've all done wrong in our lives. We've all made mistakes. This idea that the criminals are them, not us. We're not the criminals. They're the criminals. Criminals are other people, not us. It's pure fiction. If you're an adult, you've broken the life at some point, broken the law at some point in your life. You have. We're all sinners, we're all criminals, but some of us are punished for our mistakes for the rest of our lives. Some of us are treated as inherently disposable. That's the issue. It's not whether some of us make mistakes or not, or whether some of us are sinned, or whether some of us have committed crimes or not. It's that we are all human beings worthy of care, compassion, and concern. Now, of course, you know, it doesn't mean that some people don't need to be removed from our society for a period of time. If someone commits a violent crime that poses risk to our community, do they need to be removed? Of course we do. Of course they do. But I am a prison abolitionist in the sense that I believe we should end prisons as we know them, as sites of dehumanization and cruelty and humiliation. Um, and we need to reimagine what justice looks like 
for people who have committed violent crimes. And so I am a big believer that we need to join these movements, but we also need to address the divisions that exist within them. One of the other major challenges for bringing these movements together is that many African Americans, I'm sad to say, resent Latino immigrants. There's a lot of fear that Latino immigrants are taking their jobs, taking away from them. And what we have are, you know, folks, you know, fighting over crumbs thrown from the table. And so we have got to change that mentality of, are they taking from us? Are they taking our jobs away from us? And say, no, we all have basic human rights to work, to quality education, to security, to housing. We all have basic human rights. And that impulse to say, they're taking my job, therefore I want to punish them or control them or dispose of them, is precisely the same thing that led poor and working class whites in the South you know, as the civil rights movement was getting underway to say, no, I don't want them taking my job. I don't want to have to compete with them on equal terms. It's fear that keeps us divided and apart, fighting over crumbs thrown from the table rather than recognizing the dignity and humanity of us all and standing in solidarity with each other as we build um, a truly you know, revolutionary human rights movement on behalf of us all. So uh, another question, and this will be the last one, um, and it's a huge question. You, you uh, pointed out early that this uh, punitive, dominating um, dynamic of control is more prevalent in cultures that are diverse. Um, it seems to me that in the United States, though, it, it adheres to, um, I mean, you could say it's, it's cross-race, but it's particularly tied up with white identity. Um, and that thinking and talking about whiteness and its brutality is a key part of this, um, rather than always in sort of general racialized categories with respect to that, that punitive impulse. And it's Roots also in very particular ways in Christianity. So there you go. <laughs> um, well, yes, I, I think that's, you know, I'm, people often say to me, well, don't black folks want much of the get tough stuff <laughs> that politicians are selling them? And it's certainly true that many African Americans want and have asked for more police in communities um, with high levels of violence, and many black politicians have supported get-tough measures out of desperation to deal with real problems of crime and violence in their communities. But what's interesting is that the research shows that even black folks living in high-crime communities are less punitive than white folks who face little risk of being exposed to violent crime. And so there is something happening here, um, you know, with this punitive impulse that has much to do with race and isn't simply about our response to crime or fears about violence. Um, but I think it is important that we own the fact that this punitive impulse lies within all of us and that it isn't simply a white impulse to punish, but it's an impulse that is, seems, embedded 
perhaps in part of aspect of human nature to want to punish the other, punish those who seem different, punish those we are afraid of or fearful of in some way. And therefore, as we build a movement, it isn't enough to look over there and say, well, you all are so much more punitive than we are. We also have to be willing to look within our own communities. And, you know, I can say for the black community, we have a lot of work to do, too. You know, there has been a lot of shame and anger and punitiveness that has existed within our own communities um, because we have blamed ourselves and one another for mass incarceration. And, um, you know, part of the reason I wrote the book was to help people to see what I finally did, which is that we didn't ask for this system. We didn't bring this on ourselves. This massive new system of racial and social control has much more to do with our racial divisions, anxieties, than it has to do with crime or crime rates or what's actually going on um, in terms of drug use or drug abuse or rates of crime in these communities. There's something much larger going on that we need to deal with and reckon with if we are ever not only to end mass incarceration, but break this habit that our nation has acquired of creating these caste-like systems in America. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, Michelle Alexander, uh, who uh, has written a book entitled The New Jim Crow. Uh, She's speaking uh, at the Union Theological Seminary. And, of course, this is Black August, and uh, we're looking into various aspects of national oppression and the resistance to national oppression among African Americans uh, within the United States. And um, today is Sunday, August 28th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment.
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, Detroit's own uh, Kim Weston, uh, the Motown Sound. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, our worldwide radio broadcast. And uh, we're broadcasting uh, live from our studios in downtown Detroit on this Sunday, uh, August 28th, uh, 2022. And if you'd like to have access uh, to this program, uh, the Pan-African Journal special worldwide uh, radio broadcast, just go uh, to the Pan-African Radio Network. Uh, that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. Uh, that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash uh, Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com, panafricannews.blogspot.com. Uh, right now, we're going to conclude our Black August uh, programming uh, with a, another rare archival audio file. Uh, this deals with the National Conference for United Front Against Fascism that was held in the Bay Area of California uh, between July 18th and July 20th of 1969. Uh, this is a panel of uh, women uh, organizers and activists, uh, both within and without uh, the Black Panther Party at that time. Uh, during the summer of 1969, the Black Panther Party was being met by tremendous repression uh, in the United States. Let's listen uh, to this historic uh, chapter of the history of the struggle against oppression and institutional racism. Their lives, their sons, their brothers, and their husbands are disposed of by the ruling classes, either as cannon fodder in war, in which these same people are asked to make total commitments and give their lives while the fascist capitalists reap profits. Today we focus on the panel Women Speak Out Against Fascism. The term fascism was never clearly defined in this panel discussion in the same way, say, Naomi Wolf, for example, outlined 10 easy steps to change a democratic nation into a fascist state. But this was an opportunity for women from different perspectives to illuminate areas in our society where inequalities ran along class, gender, and oftentimes racial lines. Event organizers invited Marlene Dixon, a Ph.D. of sociology from UCLA, as the keynote speaker. But she deferred a majority of her time to the women who had first-person experience with injustice in their community. Keep in mind that this panel was recorded in 1969, at a time when the FBI's COINTELPRO program was infiltrating and disrupting groups like the Black Panther Party, who were providing valuable services such as breakfast programs, health services, and educational classes to the underserved community. We begin with Black Panther chairwoman Elaine Brown reading a letter written by recently imprisoned Black Panther leader Erica Huggins, now a professor of women's studies at the California State University East Bay. I waste very few words of my own because Erica said uh, just about anything there is to say regarding the uh, fascist treatment not only of herself but of all, <clears throat> excuse me, the political prisoners. This was written in Niantic Prison on July 8th of this year. Long live the United Front Against Fascism, down with the reactionaries of all kinds. It is impossible to say what I feel now. It would take too long and the state doesn't offer enough paper. But because none of us can be with you, I will try. I can envision as I write the people that will hear this. 
I can see their faces. I can feel their warmth, the warmth that comrades often have for each other. I can also see the faces of some who always appear among the people, the worried, empty, brutal faces of the agents of fascism. Worried because they know that people, poor people, oppressed people, gather together but for one reason, to analyze the conditions of their oppression and wipe it out. Empty because they have no feeling for the masses of people, for the souls of the revolutionaries we have lost, for the starving babies of this country and the world. And brutal because they will fight to the last ditch to destroy the revolutionary fervor of the people. They all continue to run back, oinking to the oppressors about the people's plans to rise up. They fail, however, to realize that the masses have boundless creative power, and no matter how they kick ass, beat us, kill us, or jail us, the people will carry on. I see the faces of change. I hope that many minds are open to what is happening. I know that many ears have been listening to the foul utterances America spits out at the world. We have listened too long, and the bitch, her mouth reeking of death, says, we have thoroughly oppressed our people at home, we are succeeding at keeping Vietnam in a state of decay. We are trampling on Africa. We are destroying South America, making bigger and better alliances with Russia. We have only to wait for Mao to die, and we will be the world power, and then we will place our murder on the moon. America is plotting universal imperialism. It will be the same everywhere. First Coca-Cola, then Oscar Mayer Wieners, and then the troops. That's right on, Erica. The people cannot take this. We cannot allow fascist fanatics to continue to deprive us of our human rights. We must organize and form an everlasting united front against capitalism, against imperialism, against class distinctions, against racism, against fascism. We cannot allow concessions from the federal government for the continual harassment and unwarranted brutality of the people. We cannot allow our children, be they black, Mexican, Indian, Japanese, Chinese, or white, to be miseducated and degraded in America's degenerate school system. We cannot allow any more lynchings, bombing, and racial ignorance down south or up south. We cannot, we cannot allow unions any longer to drive the working class. The working class must drive the unions. Our fight must be endless to organize the workers of this country to overhaul and change every assembly line and every factory. We cannot allow medical services in our communities to remain inadequate. We need more hospitals, more doctors, more nurses, and less insistence on medicinal genocide or birth control. We cannot allow the reformists to clean up the surface while the inner structure rots. We need a revolution. All of our thoughts, each of our actions should lead us to one goal the emptying of the that fills the bowels of this country. We can no longer allow the senselessness of anarchy and arbitrary destruction. We need no more impulsive, opportunistic movements, groups, or political parties that endure on socialistic rhetoric. We need socialism in practice. Right on. But in times of difficulty, we cannot lose sight of our achievements. We must see the bright future for the people and pick up our courage. We realize that there are people that support us and that however long we remain here, 
we serve as a catalytic agent to move the people forward. We only ask that you realize who your real friends and your real enemies are. We must draw a clear line of demarcation between the oppressors and the oppressed, between the imperialists and the internationalists, between the pigs and the people. Who sits next to you? All power to the oppressed people. Long live the people's revolutionary struggle. Long live the Minister of Defense. Free all political prisoners. It's Erica Huggins. All power to the people. That was Black Panther Chairwoman Elaine Brown from 1969, reading a letter written by recently imprisoned Black Panther leader Erica Huggins. Erica was arrested with Black Panther founder Bobby Seale on conspiracy charges, which were dropped two years after her arrest. Here is Women Speak Out Against Fascism moderator and Black Panther Party official Marie W. Johnson to introduce each guest. Sisters and brothers, I greet you with a sisterly love on behalf of us here on the panel. Uh, I hope you didn't come here hoping that we are going to entertain you because we just don't have the time. The people who will be speaking on this panel have not been chosen because of their revolutionary rhetorics. They were chosen because of their correct practice. I'd like to introduce you, starting with this beautiful sister to my left. She is Sister Carol Thomas, who is representing Seth Skiff. Seated next to her is another beautiful sister, Sister Penny Nakatsu. She'll be talking to us about the problems of Asian people. We had hoped the native sister from America would have been with us. If Sister Deanne DeRion is in the audience, we would love to have her among us. We have another sister who was detained because of delay of plane and is on the way at this very moment. So it doesn't matter the time, but how well you utilize it. And after all, like, we should really be out there with the masses. Continue with the introduction. On my right here, a beautiful sister called Sister Evelyn Harris. She'll be speaking about the problems of the poorest of the poor, the recipients versus fascism. Next to her is seated. Another sister that's righteous. She's armed with correct theory and practice. None other than our own sister, Roberta Alexander. <laughs> Seated next to Sister Roberta is another beautiful sister whom you'll get to know as well as I have. Her name, Sister Carol Henry. I'm Marie Johnson. Without much ado, I'd like to, uh, first of all, set the tone to let you know that since we are equipped with correct ideology and correct practice, we know that fascism is terror. Fascism is genocide. It is the most vicious child of dying imperialism. 
It is most important for women to be able to recognize fascism for exactly what it is. Every day, we are being used as tools by the avaricious businessman to perpetrate fascism upon all of us, as well as the exploitation of people of foreign lands. This panel hopes to arouse a sense of urgency with purpose among women. We got no time for rhetoric. There's too much to be done. We must get it together. Heretofore, women had been thought of as merely being content to remain in a prone position. Well, things ain't what they used to be, and they never will be. Fascism is being escalated upon all the people. We do not wish to separate ourselves as a separate entity. We came from the people. And by our deeds, by our correct actions, for the people, we hope to become that other half, not only of men, but of the masses of our people. It is up to every woman to join their sisters and brothers who are already in the struggle for survival. Survival. Women must acquire correct thoughts and perform correct daily actions. Daily deeds in a correct manner will liberate the minds of the women. There is no need to demand liberation. Get it together. Get the correct ideology. Put it into correct practice. And you'll be recognized by what you do, not just for the sake of being a woman, because we are of the people. We must not wait for fascism to vamp on us personally. An injury to one is an injury to all. You better believe it. Fascism is like a contagious disease. It terrorizes, and quite often it kills us. Remember little sister from uh, Nebraska? She was only 14 years old. Then we also have, uh, facing a long prison sentence, Sister Erica Huggins. Brutality, fascism, she really knew it. She went through the same thing and is going through the same thing that Sister Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman. Along with Sister Huggins, we mustn't forget our brothers, New York 21. We never forget Brother Linscombe, Brother James Rector, Brother George Basket. Our own brother, Bobby Hutton, Bunchy Carter, and the late brother Huggins of Sister Huggins. I have seen the mothers and the sisters. I have felt their pain. I have seen the young men coming from Vietnam, limbless. They relate to us. So I would ask the audience, don't dig on time, but dig on good deeds. So before I take up much more of your time, uh, the sisters here have much more than I could ever say. I'd like to first present Sister Roberta 
Please come. Right on. I'd like to start off by saying, brothers and sisters, that there is a struggle going on right now. Um, our topic up here today is to talk about uh, you know, women versus fascism, the role of women in the movement. There was, there was some commotion here, and I'd like to address myself uh, briefly to that commotion. I think it's significant. First of all, there's a struggle now going on in the Black Panther Party. A lot of people around the country are confused about what's happening now in the Black Panther Party around the woman question, around the role of women in the Black Panther Party. This confusion has been created and added to, added to with the demagogy of the bourgeoisie, with their Larry Powells and their McClellan committees. They're adding to the confusion of the people, and the Black Panther Party now wants to stand up forward before all of you and explain a little bit of what's happening. We talk about divisions among the people and how the ruling class uses those divisions to weaken the people and to weaken the people's struggles. We are now faced with a rising tide of fascism in this country and the people have to be united in order to fight this tide. Huey P. Newton says, as the uh, brother earlier said uh, tonight, that we have to limit our bickering as much as possible between the movement and make our concentration upon the enemy. This is correct. And we must recognize the enemy when we see it. This is also very important, because if we don't know what the enemy is, then we're in bad shape. Now, on the question of male chauvinism, on the question of male supremacy, this is a true problem in our society and reflects capitalist society, period. Women are placed in a particular role and they're expected to stay in that role. We have problems in the party, that's true, because we, we are part of a society and if we were to say we didn't have no problems, we'd be lying to the people. We're not going to lie to the people. In order for the people to understand the question, we'll tell the truth. For the last several months in our party, there have been struggles over this question. And the struggles have, 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 have gone through the whole gamut of possible you know, problems. They've gone through women leadership, women being able to be armed, defend themselves as well as the brothers, whether or not the women do all the typing, or whether or not they also take part in the armed self-defense and the running of the offices and not just behind the typewriters. And it even goes down to the sexual levels, you know, whether or not the women are supposed to do so-and-so for the cause of the revolution, etc. And there have been a hell of a lot of distortions about the party's position on precisely this point. There's been a lot of struggle in the party, and at times this struggle has become so principled that we think more we have thought more, this has been corrected, we think more about the contradictions between the women and the men in the party, between the sisters and the brothers, than we do about the pigs. Now there is a problem there, because that cannot be allowed. The pigs are out to murder us. The sisters and the brothers are class sisters and brothers. The sisters and brothers in a struggle. 
and the party has addressed itself to this problem and is now being resolved and is being resolved correctly. It's being resolved through an intense struggle among the party. The women, as Eldridge Cleaver said, are our other half. They're not our weaker half. They're not our stronger half. But they are our other half. Right on. That was Black Panther member Roberta Alexander from the 1969 panel, Women Speak Out Against Fascism. Being a woman, I have to correct myself. We had a beautiful sister sitting up on that end that flew in and got in here about an hour and a half ago from Los Angeles. Many of you are familiar with her. Her name is Sister Marlene Dixon from Los Angeles. So we'll follow the, the program in order. The next sister will be Sister Carol Henry. Greetings, revolutionaries, brothers and sisters, all oppressed people. Yes, I said brothers and sisters, men and women. That sounds quite different from the animalistic terms that we often use to one another. Bitch, slut, cow, chick, nanny goat, and or oftentimes broad hole for those of you whose vocabulary have advanced to that complexity of decadence. I want to talk to you, I want to talk to you, and I only have limited time. And I don't want any more provocateurs standing up and running that kind of garbage. Um, the acceptance of these crude terms, not only by the chauvinistic man, but by the woman herself, is a clear indication that respect and objective estimation of one's character is lost. Lost in an avalanche of insecurities and subjective egotistical dispositions. Women, women, yeah, all you women, those of you who even shouted out, we are alienated, alienated from the word go. We have uh, been alienated from basic humane relationships, humanitarian contact. We have been alienated from the other half, men. We have been alienated from our children, from ourselves. We have been separated by the tools of this fascist government, the bloody tools that have categorized us and deprived us socially, politically, and economically. And these are the same bloody tools that oppress us racially. Women, 
especially white women who know so little of their oppression. Women have been exploited mentally and physically by the color of their skin and the shape of their breasts. All I saw uh, when I was a little girl was rosy cheek, straight haired, white skin, blue eyed baby dolls, and sex symbolized commercials. And from infancy, this uh, creating inside of me whitewashed criterions, making me feel that if you're white, you're right, and if you're black, get back. This feeling of inferiority is just one aspect to alienation. And the other aspect is superiority. Both of these manifestations of struggle align with the contradictions between the oppressed and the oppressors. In a fascist society, these contradictions are expressed through racial antagonism. Among the demented minds of racist women, the struggle is in competition against other women for castrated Friends and women in particular, in unison we must let our bow cry be heard. We will no longer tolerate the arrogant separatism and magnanimous distortions arising from any kind of discrimination. We will no longer, we will no longer tolerate fascist tactics to attain finance capital through the blood, sweat, and tears of the people. The pig uses any means necessary, any means necessary to exploit, dehumanize, separate, and conquer. Down with the pig, fascist pig oppressor. Long live the people's liberation struggle. Long live Hugh P. Newton and Eldridge Cleaver. All power to the people, dare to struggle, dare to win. All power to the people, all power to the people, right on. Wow. Continuing on in the order, I wish now to introduce you to our sister, Penny Nakasu. On the question of male supremacy and male chauvinism, as an Asian woman, I can speak well and long. I can speak well and long of the heroic women who have died combating racism and imperialism. I could speak of women like Iva Taguri Dakino, who spent 16 years in an American racist prison for a crime for which she had no part in. I could speak of a sister who died in the 1950s struggles in Tokyo, died in the struggle against the re-ratification of the United States-Japan Security Pact. 
and I could speak well and long of the heroic struggles of our courageous Vietnamese sisters. For the example, I hope all women can well follow and learn from, but I will not. What I came here to speak of today is a story that many of you may not know of, may have forgotten, may not remember. The story begins in 1942. Many of the elements of the story are duplicated here today and now in the year 1969. The dates 1942, 1950, 1969, taken together as a sum total, equate American fascism today. In case many of you have not caught on to what I'm referring to, I'm speaking of the incarceration of more than 110,000 people, human beings, for the crime of, ha of having yellow faces, of having Asian names in World War II. The story goes like this. There was no law. There was no 1950 McCarran Internal Security Act at that time to put my people, our people, into the, uh, what was then euphemistically termed relocation camps. There were 10 of those camps. I will not call them relocation camps. I will not call them detention camps. I will call them the concentration camps that they were and are and still exist today. I come from a generation of children born in concentration camps. Many of these places you will find no longer exist on the map. They were born in, in places with names like Manzanar, Tule Lake, Topaz, Rower, and on and on. In 1942, a presidential mandate issued by President Roosevelt empowered the racist military under the leadership of General DeWitt to incarcerate 110,000 people, more than two-thirds of whom were American citizens. Many of these people remained in these concentration camps for the duration of the war. All of them received between 24 and 48-hour notice to report to the nearest military authority, to report their belongings, to dispose of their beloved possessions within the span of 24 and 48 hours. How generous, how magnanimous our government was, how magnanimous our government will be when it calls on us to report. But when it calls on us, we will not be sitting in our homes talking. We will be prepared to act. We will be prepared to move. that I hope we can learn from 1942 is not to wait, not to wait until we have positive 
irrevocable proof of the racism and the all-encompassing determination of our monopolistic, capitalistic system to suppress all movements, all peoples who will work for social change, who will work for liberation, who will work for division of fascism and imperialism. Thank you. Power to the people! Power to the people! You are listening to Women Speak Out Against Fascism, a Black Panther Party conference held in 1969 on From the Vault for Women's History Month. For more information or to get a copy of this program or the other programs in our series, visit us online at fromthevaultradio.org or call us toll-free at 1-800-735-0230. You can research our collection at pacificaradioarchives.org. And now back to our program. You worry about liberty because you've been denied. Well, I think that you're mistaken, or then you must have lied. people that were on this panel not only work at the stuff, they have the experience, they live it. From the Southern Christian Educational Fund, I'd like to introduce to you Sister Carol Thomas, who will be talking about the women and some of her experiences. Good evening, brothers and sisters in struggle. Uh, Because of the economic and legal powerlessness of women, they have little or no control over their lives. They have little or no control over their children or what happens to them. Their sons, their brothers, and their husbands are disposed of by the ruling classes, either as cannon fodder in war, in which these same People are asked to make total commitments and give their lives while the fascist capitalists reap profits. Or they see their sons, their husbands as workers in an industrial machine, which is not for the welfare of the workers, but for the profit again of the fascist capitalists. Mostly, What I want to talk about is some of the experiences that I had when we women in Gainesville, Florida came together around certain issues. First of all, 
in the summer of 1967, the welfare mothers, the mothers on welfare, many of them organized into a welfare rights union. They went to the welfare department and demanded the necessities of life. They were only getting 66% of what was supposed to be basic needs. Uh, the pigs came. That was their response. We went back two weeks later after having presented our needs. Again, the pigs came. The women then took their request to the county commission in Gainesville. And the reaction to that was to have the police come out and pick me up as uh, an agitator and warn me that, that these women, if they continued to go to the county commission and agitate in the way they were doing for the necessities of life for their children, uh, we're going to start a riot. I don't think we quite realized our power at that time. We happened to have a, we happened to win a few concessions like, you know, a, uh, a food stamp plan or, or a commodity distribution program, but the power still remained with the pigs. Later, well, for, for several years, uh, I had heard women had come to me out of the city jail and said they were being sexually molested by jailers in there. I took this information on their behalf very naively to the police department thinking they were going to do something about it. I then took it to again very naively to a human relations commission and they expressed the proper horror and it was all covered up. None of the women that brought me these stories were willing to verify any of this in writing for fear of reprisals by people in the power structure whom the pigs represented. In 1967, we had some beautiful sisters come out of that jail, mad as hell. <laughs> they were getting tuned in to who they were, both racially and as women, and the power that they could command. We wrote up an affidavit, which a brother, Jack Dawkins, then read to the city commission after the women had organized and gotten their sisters to the city commission and many of the brothers also. Jack Dawkins read the affidavit and the immediate reaction was to cite him for contempt before the city commission. Failing this, they call for a grand jury investigation of practices into the city jail where there were no matrons and where women had almost died, several of them had almost died having miscarriages when the jailers didn't feel like walking up and attending to them. Well, we got the people there. The grand jury investigation was called for. The women came to the grand jury investigation and they tried to testify. Instead of allowing the truth to come out, uh, their relationships with various organizers in the community was pried into. Dawkins and I had written a paper analyzing what we expected to happen. In other words, nothing. No action. There was going to be a big whitewash. Well, 
to show you the way the pigs worked, the state's attorney Xeroxed a copy of the paper and took it into the courtroom and said that we had taken it in. And he arrested us for contempt of court. We spent four, mu- four months and six months, well, yeah, in jail. The conviction has just been recently overturned. But while we were in jail, we did a bit of organizing. The men organized the men's cell block. The women organized the women's cell block. And we found we had such tremendous strength in the motto, one for all and all for one. And every confrontation we had, that's the way we carried it out. We got piddly little things like, you know, maybe heat when it was freezing. We got a change in diet, a little less starch. We had to practically make a riot in the jail to get sick prisoners to the hospital which we did. Uh, The very threat of our organizing made the jailers adhere to the law. The juveniles were to be kept separately from the adults. But again, well, also, before this was over, prisoners with problems were sending them to the women's cell blocks. And we sort of changed the policy about how trustees were made and this kind of thing. And before it was over, uh, there was a big riot in the jail, and nobody knew why. It seemed that we were not allowed to really solve anything ourselves. It was all doled out to us, piecemeal, tokenism. And when we got out of jail, all of us that had undergone this experience realized that this was the same way it was on the outside. In fact, it didn't really make any difference whether you were in jail or out. The bars were the same. All right. We were out of jail, and the women stuck together. During the time we were in jail, a number of firebombs got thrown in protest. They tried to blame it on black people, the people who had for so long suffered the indignities and the oppression and the exploitation by the white power structure. The only thing they could think to do was to arrest the people who were most militantly protesting the situation in Gainesville at the time, which they did. The women organized and harassed the hell out of the pigs. They had student help. A number of fire alarms got pulled. A number of phone calls were made in which the pigs just you know, well, they couldn't use their phones anymore because the lines got all tied up. The analysis was that uh, since one of the students had gone to Cuba, that he had brought back Cuban sabotage techniques (laughs) and were applying them against Gainesville power structure. And they predicted they were going to have a long, hot summer that summer. And they did. You know, it's funny how they always know they're going to have one. They plan it. The subject of my talk was supposed to be how to control the police in the community. I don't think you can control them. It's part of a larger question. It's a...
as to how the power is going to be distributed. Are we going to let the pigs in the Pentagon send our men to Vietnam? Or are we going to organize and educate our sisters and engage in political struggles and, and resist? Or are we going to let stand by helplessly and cooperate in the repressive powers that are in the communities in our lives? No, we can't gain control in the present framework. We can only organize to resist the authority of the police and the courts, the courts which are the bulwark for the fascist exploiters. For too long, the victims of exploitation and repression and racism have been asked to pay the price to maintain a system which rewards and promotes the real criminals in society to positions of great wealth and power. Again, organize, organize, and resist. Power to the people. Thank you, sister. We have a very limited time, not because of chauvinism, but because of fascism. They want to put the lights out on them. Well, we can wrap in a dog. Banana dog, but we coming out in the light, baby. This time, without further ado, I'd like to introduce to you from Welfare Rights Association here in Oakland, Sister Evelyn. Sister Evelyn Harris. Greetings, brothers and sisters. I'm here on behalf of you, my brothers and sisters. I'm here to speak to you in behalf of the poor people, which is welfare recipients. I want to talk to you about some of the experience as well as education I've had. I am the chairman of the Welfare Rights Organization. And our purpose is to help the recipient to gain their pride and be as independent as anyone else. I have had the experience of working with the head of the welfare department, with private attorneys, legal aid, the district attorney, the probation office, and etc. You'd be surprised of the little knowledge that they know, especially the Board of Supervisor and the Welfare Commissioners. These are people that sit and make a budget for individuals to live on. For instance, I would take his, the budget for four, a family of four. Everyone talk about the taxpayers, the tax, their money coming out of their check. You'd be surprised what little money that a family receives to live on. And the DA is sit 
face is fair, deprives the mother of her personal problems, to expose her, to make her shame. But I want to let you know, as any of you in here, that have problems, that is on welfare, there is no shame. You have a right to that money as well as the head of the department, other social workers. First of all, we are asking that we have qualified social workers which can be replaced by recipients. Everyone, everyone that is on welfare is not ignorant. They have the knowledge to computer budget. They have the knowledge to interview people. And this is what we are trying to get over, that we, Welfare recipients sit on the Board of Supervisors, help compute the budget. Welfare recipients sit on the commissioners and help make the laws. Welfare recipients can live a decent life and be just as proud as the next working man. Also, I would like to speak briefly that the problems, I can go on and go on, but the time is limited. That we're having problems with the school, where the children in the school is branded because they are on welfare. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, excerpts uh, from uh, the National Conference for United Front Against Fascism. Uh, that uh, was led by the Black Panther Party in uh, July of 1969 and that's going to conclude our program uh, for today and for the month of August black August if you'd like to have access to these programs just go to our website at uh, the pan-african radio network that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-african journal blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-african journal and uh, if you'd like to uh, read the pan-african newswire just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, this uh, program today uh, with uh, the music of uh, the legendary uh, John Coltrane. Uh, This is uh, taken uh, from the album entitled Stardust. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.
Thank you. 